Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is the award-winning broadcaster and presenter Nihal Arthanayaka. Nihal joined BBC Radio 1 as a music DJ back in 2002 and has worked for the broadcaster for two decades. He now presents a daily daytime talk show on BBC Radio 5 Live, as well as the official Penguin Books podcast. He's won several accolades for his conversational skills, including Interview of the Year at the 2019 BBC Radio and Music Awards. His new book is Let's Talk, How to Have Better Conversations, and it draws on his years of experience as a professional talker. It features interviews from a business leader, a politician, a hostage negotiator, journalists and others for whom talking is their bread and butter. It's an impassioned, invigorating and essential book that will inspire you to sit down with someone and, as we say here in Britain, have a good old chinwag. Nihal, welcome to Monocle Reads. Hi, Georgina. This is such a fascinating book, particularly for me, of course, because I do the same job as you and just talking to people is what we do all day. Essentially, Nihal, would you say it's about curiosity? Yes, Georgina, it's 100% about curiosity. In fact, you could say that I could have called Let's Talk, Let's Listen instead, because the art of conversation really is the art of listening. And I feel that that's something that we're doing less and less of. Absolutely, as the world kind of heats up, as as social media takes over. And I mean, you you pose some really interesting questions right at the beginning. You say, do you tend to communicate more through digital means than by talking to someone in person? You say, how many times in the last month have you been distracted by your phone when someone's trying to talk to you? And in the last five conversations you've had, how much of what the other person said can you remember? And finally, do you avoid having difficult conversations? Well, despite talking being my my job my answer is yes to all of that yeah and mine mine answer my answer is i mean georgina just to be clear to anybody who buys this book and you'll find this out when you start reading it is that this is just as much a journey for me than it is for you reading the book you know this is work in progress for all of us and that's really the interesting thing about it it's really a warning sign as much for me as it is for you Georgina and anyone who picks up the book. Well, you start the book looking at how we got there and you you look back at the history of conversation. Tell us a little bit more about that evolution. Well, one thing that I was interested in was, was there a time where conversation was regarded to be a skill, something that you could kind of boast about, you could celebrate? And yes, it has been for thousands of years. I go back to ancient Greece, Athens specifically, and a symposium, a gathering of men, because it was sadly always men that had these symposiums. And Xenophon is the one that reaches through history and he projects what happened back then to us today. And we hear this incredible discourse between these Athenians, these well-heeled members of the, I guess, the social elite in that particular city. And it really is conversation as entertainment, conversation as social standing, conversation as a contribution towards having a great night. And that's what I was fascinated by. And then, of course, we fast forward to the mid 18th century in London and the coffee houses and Dr. Johnson and various other people who are engaging in conversation with people And there's some really interesting principles here. In the 18th century, 
the principles being that you should disagree with people. You should have a debate with them. But also, and this was one of the fashions of the time, politeness was at the heart of it as well. An exchange of ideas, an invigorating exchange of ideas, but also through the prism of politeness, that we can agree to disagree. Or indeed, more importantly, which I think is particularly relevant today, we're open to being persuaded by other opinions, as opposed to sticking steadfastly to our own. And you also look more recently at the writing of Johann Harry. Yes, that's right. So Johann Harry's wrote this brilliant book called Stolen Focus. And I spoke to him because when I interviewed him for my BBC radio show, I suddenly, and I was writing my book at the time, I suddenly thought there are huge parallels between what you're saying. And he said, yes, absolutely there is, because the attention crisis, as he calls it, uh, means that how are we going to have better conversations if we can't focus on each other? If this rectangular supercomputer, handheld supercomputer, lies between us and having a great conversation? Because when I put it down on the table, Georgina, next to me as I'm having lunch with you, face up, what I'm saying to you is, is that whatever you have to say is only of equal importance to a Facebook notification or a push notification from Instagram or Twitter or a news alert. So I'm willing to be interrupted by you. And Johan Hari talks about Professor Posner from Oregon University in his book. And I repeat that research in my book, which talks about how once you're interrupted mid-flow, it takes on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you were on when you were talking to someone. Now, that doesn't matter so much if it's small talk, but if you're sitting down with a friend that you haven't seen, a loved one, someone that you want to spill the beads to, be meaningful in the conversation to, that will have a detrimental effect on your conversation. And I just don't think we realise that, Georgina. I think we believe that these little rectangular boxes are innocuous. They're not. And and Harry also talks about the rise in narcissism. Yes, he does. Absolutely. And that's, of course, about social media, isn't it? Because, and John Sutherland, the police crisis negotiator, talks about this. Are you set to broadcast, to transmit, or are you set to receive? In order to have great conversations, you have to be set to receive, not to constantly broadcast. And what social media has done is elevated our own opinions on a pedestal and says, yes, actually, the world constantly wants to know about what we have to say. And also, when you're just looking for those likes, those digital dopamine hits all the time, that is narcissism, right? It's validation, constant validation. And through that, how can you have a meaningful and good conversation with someone if what you're doing is just thinking about yourself? My daughter, who was 12 at the time, it, in fact, it was the day before her 13th birthday, was sitting in the car. I just drove her back from a kickboxing class. And she said, oh, every week we have a phrase that the school put on the board and we kind of read them, some wash over her. This one didn't, and it was this. Are you listening to understand or are you listening to talk? Right? And the wisdom inherent in that very simple sentence is the problem that we have. Too many of us now are listening simply to talk, not to understand. We're just waiting for our moment to jump in with our response, our reply, our opinion. 
And again, that's where the problem lies, I think. So in part two, you look at how we get around that. You look at the mechanics of conversation. How do we do it properly? Well, that's quite interesting. I spoke to Professor Elizabeth Stokoe about this. And I went in with good and bad conversations. And she took the words good and bad and the moral judgment attached to that out of it and said, what we need to be thinking about is effective and less effective conversations. And they can be really simple interactions. And she gives a brilliant example where she goes into two coffee shops in the same afternoon. The first coffee shop she goes into, she orders her coffee. The coffee comes. She says, oh, excuse me, do you have Wi-Fi? The person across the counter says, yes, we do. She says, um, can I have the Wi-Fi code? Oh, yeah, it's over there on the wall. That's an ineffective conversation because she's had to ask a number of things. It's made her feel uncomfortable, etc. She goes into the second coffee shop, orders a coffee, probably quite high on coffee by this time. And then the person across the counter, Georgina, says, here's your coffee. Oh, and if you need the Wi-Fi, there's the Wi-Fi code over on the wall. Now, I think we can both pretty quickly work out what's the most effective conversation. She felt good about that as she walked away from it. And really good conversations are, or effective conversations, I should say, are as frictionless as possible. It's where you're trying to get from point A to point B. You're not going all around the houses to try and get there. It's about turn taking. It's about understanding. This is your turn. This is my turn. And both of you being essentially on the same page when it comes to that. So there are lots of technicalities about it. But the structure of a conversation stays the same. She uses the coat hanger example, Georgina, where actually conversational structure is the coat hanger. All the things that we say, verbal cues, they're the clothes. So you can hang multiple different clothes on a clothes hanger. But that structure, that turn taking, the listening, all of those things stay the same. Mm. Now, of course, that's all very well when you're talking about something innocuous like Wi-Fi codes and so on. But often we're in a situation where we have to have a difficult conversation. Now, I know that I'm one of those people who would just far rather jump on an email than even attempt this. (laughs) And it's very hard to do. So how do you have a difficult conversation? I know in the book you, you've you actually spoken to a number of people who've been involved in these and not just at the level of trying to discuss something that makes you feel uncomfortable domestically, but in real life or death situations. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a chapter where I interview the former president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, the Emmy Award winning filmmaker, Dia Khan, and the police crisis negotiator, John Sutherland and one thing that was interesting about Dia Khan and I cannot recommend highly enough her documentary White Right Meeting the Enemy is that this brown-skinned Muslim woman spent a long time hanging out with American neo-Nazis and white supremacists and just think about that for a second how brave that is to do that but also as well The title of the documentary she points out in the book is White Right Meeting the Enemy. Now, of course, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists would be the enemy. But she said she had to think about why it was that she was their enemy. And that took some self-reflection. And she also had to say that political ideology, vile political ideology that they ascribe to, 
was not all of who they were. And that, again, is something that we find difficult nowadays, where we think of someone who voted Brexit or someone who voted Remain. That's the whole of who they are. And that isn't the whole of who they are. Similarly with Mary McAleese. When she started the conversations with people diametrically opposed to her in Northern Ireland in the late 90s, she said, I didn't start off with the heavy stuff. Firstly, I invited them to my home. They didn't come in through the back door or through an underground tunnel. They walked in through the front door. They sat in our living room. And we talked about the other things. Family, weather, holidays, sport. To build trust. So what you have to do, and Rick Haythornthwaite talks about this later on in the book. Now, he's been a FTSE 100 chair. He's the non-executive chairman of Ocado. He was formerly the global chairman of MasterCard. He said there are type one and type two conversations. The type one conversations are the ones which are driven by instinct and emotion. The type two ones are the ones where you step back, you look at the facts, you take emotion out of them and you try and come to a solution. Now, if someone's having a type one conversation when you're trying to have a type two conversation, that's obviously going to be problematic. If two people are having a type one conversation, again, that can potentially be problematic. But if two people can understand that we need to have a type two conversation here, both of us together, we need to understand that this is the criteria in order for us to move forward, then you can move forward. And that's, I think, applicable as much as it is to the boardroom as it is to talking to your own children. Mm. And I guess what Khan is really saying is that empathy is very much at the heart. You have to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and see it from their, their point of view. Well, absolutely. I mean, she had a conversation with these American neo-Nazis and she asked them why it was that they felt the way they were. And one of these guys talked about how he felt that he was the first generation of white Americans who would be worse off than the previous generation. Previously, it had been about the American dream and that every generation would be more affluent. But this wasn't the case. And he had grown up around, you know, just the destruction of the industrial environment around him with huge unemployment, desolation, abandoned factories. And Dia Khan pointed out to him that there were many African-Americans, Latino-Americans, who had experienced the exact same thing. And that, I mean, when she spoke to them, I think it was President Trump was there, and he had more in common with those African-American and Latino communities than he did with President Trump. And he had no answer for that. Because he had been taught that it was those people who were to blame. It was people of colour that were to blame. It was Latino communities that were blamed. It was affirmative action that was to blame. And essentially, he'd been lied to. And that was revelatory. Mm. Now, as we said at the beginning, we're in the same sort of line of work and it's, it's, it's interviewing people. One thing I have found incredibly difficult from the pandemic is no longer being face to face with people. So we're conducting this conversation now and I can't see you. And although it's a great conversation and I'm enjoying it, it would be enhanced 100% if I were looking into your eyes. Do you not feel that too? Yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. But I think we have to be conscious of not relying on our technology 
as a way of connecting and fooling ourselves into thinking because we're on a WhatsApp group with someone, we're connected to them. And that that worries me. So I think that while you and I can't see each other, we're still listening intently to each other. I'm listening intently and actively to your questions. You're listening actively and intently to my answers. So that's in some way an effective conversation, without doubt. It would, of course, be enhanced if we were both sitting in a room and I could see your verbal cues, your facial expressions, feel the energy. But this form of communication that we're doing currently now is far better than us doing this via Instagram DM or WhatsApp voice notes. Mm. I mean, from a professional level then, tell us about how you frame the conversation for an audience, because it's not just about talking to your interviewee, it's also about all the people listening. I don't tend to think about what it is they want who are listening. What I think about is what is going to make this the most interesting conversation for the interviewee. And I have found that that's actually what the audience want, you know, because I can't think, oh, what would, what, what question would uh, Steve in Bedfordshire or Priya in Leicester want? I have to say, okay, this person is super interesting. William Orbit, for instance, who I interviewed last week. In fact, it was, a, it was a really good week, actually. It was George Ezra, Kevin Bridges, the comedian, Dave Gorman, the comedian, and William Orbit, the legendary producer and artist. And... With all of those conversations, Georgina, I am genuinely curious about this person. And that curiosity is addictive. So people listening to it say, this person genuinely cares about the person who's sitting in front of them. He genuinely wants to find out who they are, what they are, why they do the things that they do. And because I'm also curious as a listener, I will go on that journey with them both and I will get something from it. There's... Nothing worse than an interviewer talking more than the interviewee. And when you hear that, Georgina, when you hear it, when I hear it, we know straight away as interviewers where that interviewer has got it wrong. I don't want to hear, I don't know, for, for sake of argument, Piers Morgan's voice more than I want to hear the interviewer. I'm not sure I ever want to hear Piers Morgan's voice, to be honest. But, but you know, if it makes it all about the interviewer, then you failed. You know, you absolutely failed. So I guess that the last question then is, why do you do what you do? And it goes back to your very first question. It's because I'm curious and I will never stop being curious. And if we were all curious, I mean, Professor Tanya Byron in the book and Lorraine Kelly in the book talk about curiosity and how important it is for us all. And in a world where our kids may end up doing jobs that haven't even been invented yet, the one thing that will make sure our kids are battle ready for the future of work is that they retain curiosity. They constantly want to learn. They are excited by learning new experiences, new ideas. And we should never, no matter how old we are, forget that. Absolutely. Nihal, thank you so much. Georgina, thank you. Let's Talk by Nihal Arthanayaka is published by Trapeze, And it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researchers Lillian Fawcett and Tamsin Howard. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.